called the Beatitudes. And uh, if you've slept since then, I'll refresh you what they were. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they that mourn, blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Today we're headed back to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at four more Beatitudes this morning. And I trust you will focus in and get what God has for you this morning. Uh, these are powerful principles that Jesus set forth for his kingdom. And so Matthew chapter 5, our reading today is verses 7 through 12. And if you're physically able, would you stand for our reading this morning? As we get started, Matthew 5, verse number 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Let's pray. Father, would you work now this morning as we look at this passage that you delivered to us as your disciples in this generation. I pray that you would help us to live out the Beatitudes in our lives, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, and help us to consider this morning what you would have for each of us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We noticed last Sunday that the Beatitudes include uh, this foundation for living and this foundation for the kingdom of God. But we saw that it includes not only foundational actions, but also foundational attitudes. And that these attitudes and actions produce happiness on earth, but they also produce rewards in heaven. And that's our theme this morning, taken from verse number 12 where it says, great is your reward in heaven. And so that's our topic today, great is your reward. The notes are provided in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along with us this morning. And we're going to begin by seeing another attitude beatitude. And that's kind of how you can distinguish, right? There are the action beatitudes, and then there are the attitude beatitude, which is kind of a, a weird term, but we, we got it out there. So let's we'll start with it. And at verse number seven, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. And when we think of merciful, uh, sometimes we might think of charity work. Or we might think of uh, the Red Cross or Samaritan's Purse or groups that are going into places like uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana right now and helping people who are affected by the flood. Just tens of thousands of people who've lost their homes and their place of business and their churches. But being merciful is more than that. Being merciful is for every believer. And being merciful is not something that is only for those who have the gift of mercy. All right? Now, there is a spiritual gift called the gift of mercy. And it's listed in the list of spiritual gifts in Romans 12. But we are all called to be merciful. And when Jesus talks about Happy or blessed are those who are merciful. This uh, is a merciful heart that it really is a spiritual attitude. But here's a distinguishing characteristic, I think. 
And sometimes, even though this is an attitude beatitude, blessed are the merciful, here's what we find. This attitude always results in action. And, and so the merciful beatitude is not just about feeling for someone. It's not just about having an emotion of mercy. It's about having some follow-through. It's about having some action in, in what we do in the way of mercy. Jesus told a story, and you may remember this story in Luke chapter 10. It's a parable of the Good Samaritan. And you may remember in the story of the Good Samaritan that a man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and as he went on the highway, he was attacked by these thieves uh, who robbed him not only of everything that he had, they even took his clothes, and then they beat him senselessly and left him there to die on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And you might remember that uh, two men of the cloth happened by, a Levite and a priest. And they both uh, were kind of like modern politicians. They felt mercy, but decided not to do anything about it. Right? So, so they, they felt mercy, but they passed by on the other side. And then there was the Good Samaritan who showed up. And the Good Samaritan being this picture of Jesus Christ. And when you think about Luke number 10, uh, Luke chapter 10, it says that when the Samaritan saw the wounded, broken man on the road, that he had compassion on him. But it doesn't stop there. Okay, so he had an attitude of mercy. He had compassion on him. But there was a result of action. Now listen to all of these action verbs that are in that story. Okay, it says he went to him. That requires action. He bound up his wounds. He poured oil and wine as a salve on his wounds. He set him on his beast. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him. He paid the innkeeper. And then he paid the innkeeper to take care of him while he was gone. So there's some actions that came about because of his attitude of mercy. And the Good Samaritan is a picture of Jesus Christ and his attitude toward us, the human race. Jesus, who is fully self-sufficient, he doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need any of our giving. He doesn't need any of our input. Uh, he doesn't need mercy from anyone. He doesn't need kindness from anyone. Jesus is fully self-sufficient, and yet he stooped. And he stooped to such a degree that he became a man. He who was God became a man and passionately embraced mercy for the entire human race. And now this same Jesus is expressing to the multitudes, to his disciples, to his future followers, that happiness belongs to those who agree with his wonderful mercy, not only for their own lives, but for the lives of others. Now, the reward for this one is what's so intriguing to me. Now, look at it again there in Matthew chapter 5, in verse number 7. All right? Think, think of it this way. So it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Isn't that crazy? That's the reward for being merciful, is that you will obtain mercy. Here's why it's so important. When we can't love mercy for others, we break the bridge that we have to cross because we need mercy. 
Jesus described it this way in the model prayer. You may remember this, where he said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And if we can't love mercy for the people around us, God can't shed his mercy on us. And we talked in life group today about how sometimes you can describe things by their opposite. All right, so happy are those who are merciful. Miserable are those who aren't. Now think in your mind right now, okay, don't look around, please don't look around. All right, think of, in your mind, who are some of the most miserable people that you know? Right? You're thinking right now. You're not looking. You're thinking. Right? I'm even putting my head down. Okay? I'm <laughs> trying to do this in a, a tangible and yet uh, kind of a, a compassionate way here. The most miserable people you know. Now think about the, the attitude that they have toward this beatitude. When I think of who the most miserable people are on the earth, they're the ones who hold grudges and they hold resentments, and they create these bitterness issues over these meaningless, trivial things. And then they clutch them, and they hold on to them. And they don't want offenders to have any mercy. If you hurt me, you never get mercy, right? If you hurt me, I'm never dispensing mercy to you. That's how miserable people live, right? Now, some of the people who are miserable are so miserable that they create their own weird enjoyment out of being bitter. Have you ever met somebody who's like, they, they tried their best to be happy by making snide remarks? They tried their best to find enjoyment out of being mean to other people, right? And, and creating kind of this persona and this air about them that's just dark and black and nobody wants to enter the room because they're the opposite of merciful. And so when we think blessed are the merciful, it's, it's so evident by what God gives us, for they shall obtain mercy. And those who are not merciful, those who are resentful, they don't receive any mercy. I'm telling you, if we don't receive mercy, we're in big trouble. Because we as human beings need mercy, not just once, daily. Right? We need people to be merciful to us. We need our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones and the people we work with to be merciful to us because we're frail human beings and we mess up and we hurt each other and we offend each other and we make mistakes. And so we need this topic of being merciful. But this carries over into this next one, blessed are the pure in heart. And uh, this is such a beautiful one to me uh, look, look what it says again. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, think about this just for a second. Is there any higher reward than to see God? Uh, there's no higher reward than to see God, but only the pure in heart would think so. Okay, so if you're sitting out there today, and what I just said that, is there any higher reward than to please God? and you thought of some, or to see God, and you thought of some other stuff, and you thought, that's not really that big of a deal, then I'll clue you in on something. You're probably not pure in heart. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just telling you where you're at today. Have I had days where I'm not pure in heart? Yeah, lots of times. Yeah, I'm in the same place with you, where when I've tried to pursue something other than seeing God, 
that's not being pure in heart. Where my priorities are messed up and they're twisted around, and when that happens, I don't see God, and I don't see God's blessings, and I don't see God working. And if you're you're a person who gets twisted in your heart and your mind toward God and you begin to look out and you see only God blessing other people but never you, then you have pure in heart issues. Because seeing how God is working in your own life is the very evidence of the pure in heart. Yeah, I love the passage in Exodus. Kind of think back through, see if you remember this. Moses had gone up on Mount Sinai. And he went up specifically to receive these tablets of stone. Okay? Anybody remember what was on them? You guys remember the Ten Suggestions? <laughs> right? I know the Ten Commandments are going to be on these tables of stone. And, and so uh, he had special instructions. They had to stay away from the mountain. And men and women were supposed to stay away from each other, even in their physical relations. God wanted a pure, holy scene as he went up on the top of that mountain. And as he went up there and he received the tablets of stone and God wrote them with his own finger, all of a the sudden, there's a noise back down in the camp. And the noise, as they get closer, is a noise of war. And they hear people singing. And they get closer and they see down in the camp that the people are disrobing themselves and bowing down to golden calves. Just think of the picture. It's unbelievable. Here's Moses up on the holy mount communing with God. And here are the people down below, not pure in heart, not seeing God, not wanting anything to do with God, wanting their own amusements, wanting to do what they feel like doing. And Moses comes back down the mountain. And as he comes back down, you remember what happened to the stone tablets? You guys remember this? He threw them. He threw them. And he was so strong because of, you know, how mad he was that here he is, a guy who's over 80 years old, throws stone tablets, and they crumble. And then he takes the stone tablets. You remember what he did next? He takes the stone tablets, he grinds them up, and puts it in their drinking water. That sounds like a pretty merciful guy. I mean, right? Well, we're talking about pure in heart now. But, but here's where we get to. Go to Exodus 33, because I want you to see this. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. <clears throat> so back in Exodus chapter 33. God and Moses have this unique relationship. God says to Moses, what are your people doing? <laughs> Moses said, God, they're not my people, they're your people. <laughs> God says to Moses, I'm just going to wipe them out. I'll start over with you. And Moses said, God, they're your people. Love them, hate them, good, bad, they're your people. And you need to keep them and you need to be merciful on them. But you get to chapter 33. And Moses goes into the tabernacle, and he's in there as a go-between from God and the Israelites who've sinned. And as he goes into the tabernacle, the pillar of cloud comes over the tabernacle. And as the pillar of, the, of 
the cloud comes over the tabernacle, Moses and God speak to each other. Now look what it says in verse number 11 of chapter 33. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. This is the pure in heart. Moses spake unto God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And then, look what happens next in verse 12. He says, See thou sayest unto me, bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee. And Moses and God began to talk. And God says, my presence will go with you. And Moses says, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to go. If you're not coming, we're out. That's what Moses is saying to God. And you get a little further down in the passage, and look what happens. He said, I, I, want, you to, I want you to know me. Verse 17, the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Moses said, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And God shows Moses his character, his glory. Moses, I would submit to you, saw more of God than any human being has ever seen. God said, I can't show you the whole thing or you'll die. But I will pass by you with my back. And it was so powerful that when Moses came out of the tabernacle, his face was so bright that the people asked him to put a veil on his face because he saw God. He saw the Shekinah glory. And now we read in the New Testament, the pure in heart shall see God. When Moses was empty of Moses, and he said, God, I just want you. I just want to know you. He saw God. When Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, he saw God. It was the closest he could ever get to God. And if you want to be close to God and you want to see God, you have to empty yourself of you. You have to empty yourself of everything in your life except God. And that's when we begin to see him. See, in God's economy, holiness and happiness always go together. You can't have one without the other. Consider this. There is a difference, though, between the outwardly pure and the inwardly pure. Right? There's a big difference between the outwardly pure and the inwardly pure. The Pharisees were outwardly pure, but they never saw God. They only saw themselves. They went around and told everybody how pure they were. Their entire lives were centered around this pretense of purity. But Jesus said, inside, they were like rottenness of dead men's bones. And so we can build our whole lives 
around a facade of purity. Oh, I've been around it my whole life. I grew up in a church that was a complete facade of purity, where if you kept this checklist of you wore this, and you didn't go there, and you did go there, and you crossed these checks on what you did this week, and you gave this much money, and you did this thing, now you're pure. And yet, the same people, including me, were hypocrites at heart. And, uh, yeah, we got the outside fixed, but the inside was rotten. The inside was full of bitterness and envy and malice. And, uh, and if we're not careful, folks, we can spend our lives building out this impression outwardly of how great we are and of how pure we are and we'll never see God. Because seeing God only comes from an inwardly pure heart. And so Jesus, when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It is a powerful principle of his kingdom, and I hope you'll buy into that one. Then we see this, blessed are the peacemakers. So back in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers. Our life groups this morning found out that that is the only time that the word peacemaker and the root word for peacemaker are used in the Bible. It's the only place right there in Matthew 5, 9. We also found out in our life group that the opposite of a peacemaker is a warmonger, right? <laughs> that, was, uh, that was given to us. We just laid it right out on the table and we figured it out. But it's a little bit deeper than that. And, uh, you know, peacemaker is, is one of these ones that I think we miss. Because, once again, when we think of peacemaker, we think of the United Nations. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe we don't. <laughs> Maybe we don't think of that. When we think of a peacemaker, we think of the Nobel Peace Prize. And, and, but this is a spiritual application. It's totally different. And I, I want to share with you for just a quick minute what a peacemaker is and what a peacemaker isn't and how important this topic of being a peacemaker is. Now, once we see the ending, I think we can start breaking this down. So look at this. Blessed are the peacemakers. Here's the reward. For they shall be called the children of God. Yes. Well, what does that mean? The peace, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the children of God. Well, think of it this way. Have you ever had in your life, maybe if you have kids, somebody come up to you and say, he looks just like his daddy. Right? And uh, inside, it kind of makes you feel good. Right? Or she looks just like her mommy. Now, have you ever had your kid going through the terrible twos? Right? And, uh, and somebody says to you, that kid has a temper just like you do. Right? That's maybe not so good. Right? Or that kid's going to become a thief just like his pops. Right? It's probably not the good topic on, on that. But, but we see this in the relationship with the Heavenly Father now. We begin to understand that the peacemakers are the ones who act like their father. The peacemakers are the ones who make the father look really good. They're the hands and feet of Jesus on this earth. Jesus said it this way, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one to another. And those around them say, Wow, he looks just like his father. Ah, she looks just like her savior. 
Yes, peacemakers live in a manner that protects relationships from being broken. They do. And they keep short accounts in their relationships, and they act as mediators in their relationships around them. But it's deeper than that, and I hope you'll get this application this morning. I think this is probably the most important little minute or so of the sermon. Because peacemakers also have the courage to take initiative in relationships that are broken. Peacemakers have the courage to step into a space that nobody wants to step into. That space of discomfort, that space of confrontation, that space of having to talk about something that nobody wants to talk about. A peacemaker is not somebody who is born with this incredible personality that's a peacemaking personality. Peacemaker is often a very courageous person. A peacemaker is often a person who's willing to confront an issue. See, a peacemaker is somebody who restores relationships that are broken, not just keeps relationships from being broken. And I, I want you to think about it for just a minute in your relationships. Most of us, including me, when a relationship kind of breaks down and when space gets in there and we don't even know what all is in the space, sometimes we do, sometimes there's an offense, sometimes there's a problem, sometimes there's a sin, but there's a space that separates us in relationships. And when that happens, most of us write the relationship off. Most of us say, well, I guess that person is just no good. Okay, that person offended me, and now that they've offended me, I don't really want to have a relationship with them. That person doesn't want to be my friend anyway. Why should I give the effort? Let me tell you how a peacemaker is different. A peacemaker is the one who steps into that void. A peacemaker who's the one who takes a step into that uncomfortable space and follows through and gives effort and works hard. And sometimes a peacemaker is a husband who's willing to put his pride down and step into that space and heal his marital relationship. Sometimes a peacemaker is a wife who's willing to step into that uncomfortable space and quit playing the blame game and understand how God wants her to act in her relationship. Maybe it's a relationship with one of your kids. And as a parent, you say, well, I'm not stepping in that space again. I've done it a hundred times, and uh, this time it's not going to happen. You know what a peacemaker does? What Jesus does? He steps back in again. Sometimes it's a young person who has a rift in your relationship with your parent and you're not willing to step into that space and let down your pride and say, Mom and Dad, you could have been right about that. Sometimes it's a friendship. Sometimes it's with a coworker, a neighbor, a neighbor who allowed goat heads to grow in your yard. <laughs> right? A neighbor who allowed their dandelion, whatever they are, to wisp over to your yard and create new dandelions. And it, sometimes it's walking across that space, that dandelion-filled space, to say, hey, how's it going today? How's your week been? Instead of just standing out there in two different yards, acting like you don't even know each other. Peacemakers 
walk across the dandelions. Peacemakers walk across the space. Now, I'm saying this from a biblical perspective, not necessarily a personal perspective, because this is one of my weakest things ever in my life. All right? If James Fogel and I have a problem, my MO is, well, if it'll fix itself someday, great. If not, I'm not moving. Right? And my job as a peacemaker in Jesus Christ, not because of my personality, not because of my spiritual gifting, but because of spiritual courage, my job as a peacemaker in Jesus Christ is to walk into the space. And sometimes very gingerly. Right? And to go and to meet it head on. And when we do it, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 18, in the section we sometimes talk about church discipline. It's really about renewing friendships. Jesus said, if you will go to your brother and him alone and talk about that space, that void, that emptiness, that problem, you guys will agree and you will have gained your brother and you guys will renew a friendship and you guys will have a relationship, but somebody's got to step into the uncomfortable space. A peacemaker is more than just the middle child in the family who's the referee who says, can't we all get along? A peacemaker is a spiritual beast in Jesus Christ. One of the most courageous roles in all of planet Earth is a spiritual peacemaker. I'm submitting that to you today. And if you think you can prove it wrong, then you go ahead. But I'm going to tell you about the number one peacemaker. The peacemaker who steps into that space. In fact, the Bible called him in Isaiah 9 6, the Prince of Peace. He's the number one peacemaker. You say, well, what did, what did he do? Well, he stepped into the space, the void, the chasm, the canyon between God and man. And he made a bridge where God and man can come together. And Romans 5.1 describes it this way. It says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the peacemaker who stepped into that area where no one else could go. And he became sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you have never met the peacemaker, Jesus Christ, I hope you will today. Because he has made peace through the blood of his cross. And now we can have a relationship with the Most High God through him. And so my question before we move on, in your relationships, are you willing to step into that awkward space? Are you willing to step through that moment of confrontation to reclaim a friendship? That's what a peacemaker does. And Jesus says, he's one of mine. She's my child because the peacemakers are called the children of God. And uh, that's a powerful picture for us. Now this last one is uh, back in Matthew 5, blessed are they which are persecuted. I got to reading through this, and boy, it's three verses long. And it's three times as long as any of the rest. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it goes on to talk about how great is your reward. 
I really don't know if American Christians can understand persecution. I'm not sure if we can even understand that. Many times we treat church as consumers instead of participants. And if that church doesn't have enough, then I'm going to go to this church. But if they don't have this program, I'm going to go to this church. And sometimes we treat church as a convenience and not a responsibility and not as a priority, not as a privilege like we should. Often we don't really treasure the scriptures like we should. And sometimes we have copies of God's word all over our house, but we never pick it up. And we somehow think that persecution, and by the way, persecution is headed this way in America, but we think that persecution of all Christians is when the liberal news media speaks negatively about us. And we sometimes walk around, boy, we're persecuted, as if we are part of the ones who are being persecuted. It's a general thing. They're attacking all Christians. They haven't attacked any of us personally that I know of. Or maybe they have, and you just haven't told me. But there are parts of the world, and it, maybe you already know this. If not, could I just refresh your memory? There are parts of the world today, on this very Sunday, where persecution of Christians is very personal, and it is very real. And we're getting closer to that happening in America with every month that goes by and every election that goes by, but we're not there yet, thank God. There are places where Christians meet in secret so they won't be imprisoned. There are places where to publicly declare faith puts a death sentence on your head. There are places, if you look at the map, and I think Voices of the Martyrs maybe have this map, where they give percentages, and it's so staggering, it just makes you weep every time you look at it. It says something like, United States of America, 36% Christian, or whatever they say. And Canada, 14% Christian. And England, whatever it is, 9%, or whatever they say. There are some countries of the world, when you click on it, it doesn't say percent. It doesn't say 1%. It doesn't say half a percent. It says something like 15 known Christians in this country. Right? So there are more Christians in this room today than there are in 8 to 10 countries of the world. Because people are being persecuted for their faith to such a deep degree. And when Jesus speaks of this blessed or the persecuted... I, I hope you realize I'm not trying to play a comparison game. If God brings, allows persecution to come to us, we need to step forth courageously, willing to do it in the face of death, whatever it takes. It's not a comparison game. But anywhere it happens, whenever it happens, wherever it happens, it is being reviled because Jesus is your Savior. And then rejoicing because you can suffer for his name. The world calls those with the life of ease the ones who are happy and content. And that's how they portray it in entertainment and movies, and they make magazine covers of the people who are supposedly these happy, rich, and famous people. And yet Jesus emphasizes this last beatitude the most. Look at verse 12 again. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. 
Now, I've read the Bible many times, and I'm pretty sure, in my mind, that is the most vibrant expression of joy. It's at least comparable to any expression of joy listed anywhere in the Bible. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, which really means this is the ultimate. This is the happiest you can get. This is the most fulfilled you can be. This is the best life you could live, is to rejoice and be exceeding glad because you're allowed to suffer for his sake. That you get to be filled with joy at the privilege of being attacked just for being his friend. You know, the principles of the kingdom weren't just for the people on this mountain. They weren't just for the disciples. They're for all of us. They're for all of us and future disciples who will come into his kingdom. And it could be this morning that God is speaking to you right now about one of the four we mentioned today. Maybe it's about your attitude of mercy. Do you love mercy for those around you? Even the ones who've hurt you the most. Even the ones who've offended you the greatest. Maybe the Lord's trying to work today on that inside part of your heart to make it pure. And you're just resisting and you're putting it up a front that God sees through it. He knows the real me and the real you and only the pure in heart shall see God. I know God spoke to me even today in this message about having the courage to be a peacemaker, to step through the space between relationships, to keep short accounts, to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ because I want to look like him and I want to be known as his child. And maybe God right now puts somebody on your heart where God says you need to step through the space. Maybe God put a name right on your heart right now. Maybe it's a relative or a friend or a coworker and God is saying step through that space. Be the person in Jesus Christ I made you to be. Set aside your pride and step into that void and be a peacemaker for me. I don't know how God is working on your heart, but it could be that today. And it could be that you're facing a resistance for being a Christian. Maybe it's at your workplace. Maybe in your family circle, in your old circle of friends. But Jesus declares you happy when you embrace that role in his name. He even puts you at an elite level with the prophets who were martyred for their faith. Look, I, I already said I don't know your heart. I don't know exactly how God might be speaking you, to you today, but I, I know this. God is speaking. And the Holy Spirit is whispering into lives right now in this place. And the Word of God never returns void, and the Word of God is working on us right now if we'll just hear. And so whatever it is, however it is that God's speaking to you today, I want to give you a moment to respond. Let's bow together. And as we bow... If God puts somebody on your heart, maybe you need to step through the space. Maybe it's even a person in the room. Maybe it's a person you need to call. There's some people I know who are so tremendous and so courageous at stepping through that space to be peacemakers. How is God working on your heart today 
How is he moving you to have a pure heart before him? Whatever it is that God's laid on you, I'm going to give you a moment to respond today. Father, would you work now in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, move us to be what you've created us to be. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As Aaron plays, the altar is open. You come and pray if you'd like. Kneel at your seat. Pray in your seat. Whatever it is God wants you to do, come right now. We'll give you a moment to do that. When peace like a river attendeth my way When sorrows like sea billows roll Thank you. 